0: Download your free Sparkle Through Betrayal Recovery Guide at NakedSelfWorth.com.
1: Hello, welcome to Flaunt, the podcast for people who are struggling, the podcast for people who want to find their sparkle and create a life that they truly do love after infidelity, betrayal, any kind of trauma that is disrupting your life. That's is what we are here for. And we are here to provide real solutions, not frou frou, woo woo, funky solutions. Although sometimes things like that are fun, but real hardcore solutions. That's one of the things that I really, really appreciate about today's guest. He's not one of those people who is just going to like magic things away. He's one of those people that understands. He knows how to overcome some pretty severe stuff because he overcame it himself, and he is not going to BS you. His name is Drew Linsalata, and he is the author of An Anxiety Story and the host of the Anxious Truth podcast. Now, what I really, really appreciate about him, like I said before, is he has been there like me, I've been through the betrayal journey. So it's not just like, oh, do this and it'll all feel fine. He was once really anxious, afraid, confused, and lost. He was literally crippled with panic attacks, trapped by agoraphobia and riddled with constant anxiety. And because of that, he almost lost everything because his world became smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, He has completely recovered from his anxiety disorder. And he did it by applying behavioral science, courage, tenacity, consistency, and most importantly, an unquenchable desire to overcome his problems once and for all. And that's what I really want to get into today is, well, all of that, but also that unquenchable desire piece. Because I know when I went through my own betrayal trauma, the thing that got me through was the unquenchable desire not to be a bitter old lady, not to be grouchy and resentful the rest of my life. So with that, buckle your seatbelts. Here we go. Drew Linsalata.
2: Hey, Laura. (laughs) I didn't want to be a lady either. So we have so much in common.
1: I love that. I love that. Okay. Let's start from the beginning. Let's kind of start from that problem state. I had a problem. You had a problem. A lot of people out there have problems. Let's talk about that problem state. What was that like for you?
2: Oh yeah. Good times. Um, not good times. It was, it sucked in plain English. It sucked. I mean, anybody who's gone through it will tell you that it sucked at an epic scale all the time. It's just, you know, there is anxiety and then there's disordered anxiety. So, you know, somebody who develops an anxiety disorder just is in a bad place. It was not a good, it was not a good thing. I had, a, my life was pretty crappy and getting worse and worse by the day because of that. So yeah.
1: Yeah. And what was the response that you were getting from people? Because I like, you hey, so there's anxiety. Oh my gosh, it's going to rain. And there's an anxiety disorder. What was that like for you with the people around you? Did people get that? Or were they just like, Drew, snap out of it. Come on.
2: Um, to be honest with you, like my personality has always been such that no one really said that to me, like just snap out of it. I, nobody really offered me advice. Um. tend not to be somebody that people want to tell things, tell me what to do. So they they wouldn't offer advice, which is fine because the advice generally, even though people are well-meaning, is misguided in the case of anxiety disorders. And we can talk about that, but I didn't get a whole lot of advice every once in a while. I'd get like, you know, you just need to relax or, you know, you're working too hard. You need a vacation. Like, but it has nothing to do with that. It really doesn't. No,
1: no, it doesn't. And let's go there. How are listeners to know if they're just a little overworked and burning out and need a vacation, and and if there's really something going on, how how can they tell the difference both for themselves inside and for people that they love?
2: Um, That's a pretty, it's a good question. It's one that most people don't ask. And the answer is actually relatively easy. So anxiety is a thing that all human beings, you know, exhibit from time to time. We feel it sometimes and it's in varying degrees, right? But generally speaking, when we experience anxiety, we are aware that of the sorts, like, ah, oh, the relationship is in, on the rocks, or I'm having money problems, or I don't know what to do with my career, or my kids are driving me crazy, whatever it happens to be. I don't like my job, I had a fight with my neighbor, whatever, and we may feel anxiety and all the things that come with that, this, the physical sensations and the reactions. But we know that it's a problem that there's something pressing on me and I remain focused on that problem, or at least trying to find that problem, like, yeah, I'm not sure what's eating me, but something is, I wonder if it's blah, this, and that's fine. With an anxiety disorder, the anxiety itself becomes the problem. So the classic example is somebody who has a panic attack and who immediately becomes afraid of the next panic attack. So most people will be like, oh, that panic attack is because you weren't eating right or you're overworked or you're stressed or there's some trauma that needs healing. Maybe, but... If the panic attack leads to being afraid of the next one, and now you begin to modify your life because you're afraid of the anxiety itself, now you're in the realm of an anxiety disorder, which is a whole different ball of acts.
1: I love that description. Thank you. The anxiety itself is the
2: problem. Correct. You become afraid of being afraid. So The the physical reactions, the physical sensations, the thoughts, the disordered thinking, the scary thoughts that come along with anxiety, they themselves become the, the source of more anxiety. It fuels itself. So if there was some initial trigger, that still matters to a certain extent. You should live the healthiest life you can. And if there's trauma in your background, you should try to heal that, of course. But when the anxiety begins to fuel itself, it's decoupled from that original trigger, and now you have to work on this on its own. So, And it's very counterintuitive, by the way.
1: My my question around that is having an anxiety attack, whether it's just, oh my gosh, I'm anxious because it's raining. It doesn't feel good. Right. And it seems like there's kind of a fine line between really being afraid of the anxiety because it doesn't feel good. I don't have an anxiety disorder, right. but I have been very afraid through my infidelity journey. I don't want... I don't want to hear another disclosure. I don't want to hear about another woman. It's gonna, it's gonna completely spiral me. It's gonna completely tank me. I've heard about three. I can't take any more. And there is that fear around that. But some of that is, I hate using the word normal around anything because nothing is normal. <laughs> but so right. But some of that is like, no, of course I don't want to find out about anything else. And of course I fear that reaction. So what where's, where is where?
2: Well, that, again, would be like what we would call externalized or normal anxiety. Of course, you don't want to hear that. Like, but again, it's external to you to a certain extent. So I don't want to hear any more about that because you know it, it breaks me down. I'm going to wind up crying for a week. I'm going to have all of the feels and all the sensations and blah, blah, blah. So you know, yeah, nobody wants that. But you understand that you're not actually in danger. Like That's not a dangerous thing. So the difference is the interpretation becomes one of danger. So those disclosures make you feel uncomfortable, but they don't make you afraid because you don't associate that discomfort with danger of some sort.
1: Well said. I love that. Thank danger.
2: you. Yes.
1: Okay. So I know the other thing that listeners are probably thinking is, okay, I'm getting that. I'm understanding that. Is that something that you're just born with, or is this something that can develop in anybody?
2: Uh, it's something that can develop in anybody. So here's the. This is the. Here's the million dollar question. Like most human beings, we don't know the exact number, but a, a very large percentage of human beings walking the planet today will experience a panic attack at least once in their life. There are many, many people walking around that, that actually have legitimate panic attacks. These are real panic attacks on a regular basis that never develop panic disorder. They never become afraid of them. Why? We, we don't know. I, I wish I knew that. If I could find out one thing in the rest of my days, I would love to find that out, but I don't know why. Some people... Developed a disorder pretty quickly, too.
1: Ah, that makes sense.
2: We don't know. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And what I want to go to from that is there's no shame in that. I know a lot of people feel shame in that. Why me? Why did I do it? And I would think that would almost help feed the disorder.
2: Oh, it does in a big way. There's so many, when you get involved in like a community the size of mine, and I get to hear so many people talk about this stuff. What's amazing to me is. Number one, they start to worry, wonder like, why? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? And you might never know why. So you have to almost abandon the why. Mm-hmm. I, I know that sounds completely counterintuitive to so many people, because especially in the mental health and self-help and development space, we're always talking about going inside and reflecting and digging and healing. But in anxiety disorders, the why doesn't matter. Maybe it will later. When you're not afraid of your own body anymore, maybe you can deal with the why, but for now you got to get rid of the why. But the other thing that winds up happening is some people do misinterpret it that is I did something wrong. I caused this. I'm being punished. This is this is the way of you know, some people with you know strong faith will think that they are being punished, you know, at a higher level. I don't know why, but again, those are things that you have to try and abandon a little bit while you're working the recovery process.
1: Got it. That helps. Yeah. Okay, so let's go right into that recovery process. Right what, how did that look for you? Tell us your story.
2: Sure. So, I mean, I dealt with this, you know, the first time I ever had a panic attack was 1986, right? So I, I had no idea what a panic attack even was, never heard of that before, right? So it's pre-internet, you know, I couldn't Google it, no idea. So I uh, didn't know what it was. And uh, it immediately, I, I immediately became afraid of the next one. And I went right down the, the typical was textbook, panic attack, panic disorder, agoraphobia. That's the the textbook trend, uh, path right got it and, and honestly i went to go see a therapist and the type of therapist you see is super important when you're talking about this stuff we'll get to that okay and He had handed me a book by an australian physician who's long since passed by the name of dr claire weeks and dr weeks wrote in the 50s and 60s way ahead of her time in layman's terms about what this is in a cognitive behavioral kind of way i read the book i read it twice in two days And within like three weeks, I stopped having panic attacks and I felt like all good, but not so much because I never learned like the recovery skills. So it came back 10 years later and I did all the wrong things and I retreated and I ran and I tried to avoid it and soothe it and no, be kind to yourself. I did all, I wasn't doing that because I'm not a be kind to yourself kind of person, but I was doing all the things that traditionally you are told to do. It's okay. It's okay. You need rest. And I would retreat and retreat and retreat. And it got worse and worse and worse until I was complete, I became completely agoraphobic, couldn't leave my house. Then I became clinically depressed and it was really nasty. So I medicated my way out of that. And that was great until it wasn't. And you know, I talk about that in, in the, my, my first book, An Anxiety Story. We can go into that later if you want. Yeah. But uh, it worked until it didn't. And then it became more of a problem than a help. And then I stopped taking the medication. I went through this crazy withdrawal process in around 2005, 2006. And then I actually finally solved the problem, which was essentially going right toward everything that terrified me. That, that's the, the crux of this. This is where everybody's sort of like, eject, I'm out, I'm not listening anymore. It happens, but that's how you have to do it. There's a way, but that's how you have to do it.
1: Okay, and, and I do wanna get into that way. And yeah. I have to say, my listeners are not going to be eject, you're out. I use the concept of burlesque, which is stripping down. It's literally going into what you're afraid of. We're all afraid of, quote unquote, being naked on stage. Well, then let's do it. Because then once you're there, you're going to see, oh, actually, it's not bad. It's kind of fun. And now I can shimmy and the music is going and this is great. And I can handle this. So my listeners will love it.
2: Well, that's really the crux of the whole thing. So yes, in, in a nutshell, you're going toward your fear, right? But you have to learn to go toward it in a, in a specific way. We're, we're not learning. We're learning to be better at being afraid. We're building a new relationship with that fear. We're a new way to react to it or more specifically not react to it. And yes, in your terms, stripping yourself naked on the stage. In my terms, I ter- use the term surrender. So all the things you think are going to happen, this feels like a heart attack, this feels like a stroke, it feels like I'm going to go crazy, it feels like I'm going to hurt myself or someone else, which I know that sounds really like we're off limits, but these are common anxious thoughts that aren't true. So we let them be true so that we can learn experientially that they never are, because we can never talk ourselves out of them. You can't use words. The part of your brain that governs this, the amygdala, only understands experience. So We have to experience what we think is going to be the worst thing without fighting it. And then it doesn't happen. It doesn't Mm -hmm. happen again and again and again and again. And then your brain finally gets the message like, oh, sorry, dude, I've been wrong. And then everything changes.
1: Ooh, I love that. I love that. I want to go more into that process. But first, I'd like to point out to to the listeners and correct me if I'm wrong. I like like is in air quotes, (laughs) that you (laughs) went down the wrong path several times, quote unquote wrong path. Because I think so many of my people talk about, well, I tried and it didn't work. Well, I tried again and it didn't work. Well, I still tried again and it didn't work. And that's okay. There are so many things that I've tried so many times that still haven't worked, but eventually you do land on it. And it seems like that has also got to kind of feed into the problem a little bit as well.
2: Oh, in a big way. So many people that develop these disorders become convinced that they are broken. And like my second book that I wrote, which is called The Anxious Truth, it's a recovery guide. I spent almost the entire first chapter It's a 70,000 words. It's a lot of words. The whole first chapter is showing you that you're not broken. These are just bad brain habits, but they wind up thinking that they're broken because they've tried so many things. It's what I eat. It's what I don't eat. It's a medication. It's a different medication. It's a third medication. It's you know, it's chakra clearing, it's meditation, it's breathing, it's grounding, it's weighted blankets. And no matter what they do, they can't escape this. And they figure I'm screwed. I'm broken. But that's not true. You were just doing the wrong things.
1: Got it. Yeah. I I fully believe that whether it's related to a panic disorder or general anxiety or anything that is, yeah, we we self-reflect. I mean, even a lot of my people in the show are on the betrayal and recovery journey. And that's the same thing. It must've been me. What did I do wrong to cause him to do that?
2: Right, right. Like you said <laughs> you did something wrong, right? It's somehow your fault. Yeah. It's it's a, not, you, you weren't broken. There was nothing wrong with you.
1: No, no. Yeah, so same, I love same, that. Same thing. yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's go down this. What did you do? For people listening who are thinking, I'm right there. I'm, yeah. I feel like I'm going down this path or have gone down this path help me, Drew, what do I do? Explain explain this sequence of facing your fear and desensitizing your brain, basically.
2: That's exactly what it is. It's basically rewiring your brain and unlearning those bad brain habits is what that is. You have to start from one premise. And that is, even though I am afraid and uncomfortable, I am still safe. Like it is possible to be afraid and safe at the same time in this case. You know, if I pull a gun on you, then you will be afraid and also unsafe. But when you're having a panic attack, you become agoraphobic, you have generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety, health anxiety, you're afraid and feel vulnerable, but you are still safe. So you have to start from that premise that I can be afraid, but yet safe. And so what I have to do is do things that unbreak that connection that my lizard brain has made between afraid and danger. Because in this case, there is no real danger. It feels real. The fear is real. The danger is not. So- You got to start from there. And then you have to literally start doing the things that you fear the most. But we do them in baby steps incrementally over time, over and over and over. If you're agoraphobic and you're having a hard time leaving the house or you have social anxiety and you tend to avoid big gatherings, you don't jump on a cruise ship for three (laughs) weeks to cure it. That's bad. That won't work. You don't jump, you know, decide, well, let me go and speak in front of a thousand people when meanwhile I'm having a hard time with groups of two. You don't do that you have to do things incrementally. And that goes with all of the different types of these disorders. Mm -hmm. So it's just being, you know, incremental baby steps again and again, over and over incrementing over time. That's how you do it. So it's not as brutal as you think.
1: No, no. And then as you do a baby step, do you give yourself time to process a little bit or do you just go right back into it the next
0: day?
2: So here's where things get super counterintuitive, and like especially if you live in a space of, and I'm not discounting these things. Let me just the, I know, them. but when you when you live in a space where you're constantly bombarded with self care and self compassion and being easy on yourself and being kind to yourself, those are all really important things. But if you default to that, and one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they'll be like, okay, I, I've been terrified to do this, but They go and run out and do a thing. Then they run back to their safe bubble, whatever that happens to be. And they figure, okay, now I need three days of self-care. And they don't understand why they're not making any progress. So how you integrate those that rest, retreat, reflect, incorporate, whatever, you don't need that much time. Be honest with you. Your brain's much smarter than you're giving it credit for. So, but if you take your steps, if your steps are small enough and you're shooting at the right targets, you can do this work every single day. Every single day, and it's going to be tiring. It's going to be scary. It's going to be difficult, but you can do hard things. That's we we're capable of that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it, it
1: reminds me when you were saying, and I really appreciate that because I drive myself pretty hard, <laughs> yeah. and I like that. But the analogy that kind of comes to mind is when you're training, whether it's weight weightlifting or cardio right. or anything. When you're sore, oftentimes the best thing to do
2: is to go work out again. That's right. That's exactly right. And in this process, what kind of sucks, but it's true. And like this, I didn't invent any of this, by the way. This is, you know, all clinically based. We've been at this for decades and decades. It's the most effective treatment that we have on the planet, including medications for anxiety disorders. But what sucks about it is when you think that you should stop, those are the best days for you. When you do scary and hard things on the days when you fear them the most, that is when you learn the best lessons but only if you go back to the original premise that I said, and you understand that fear is now a classroom for me. It's not my enemy. It's my Ooh. teacher now. I have to make it my teacher. And you have to abandon the idea that being afraid itself is the disaster. If you are yes. if you are convinced that I just must never be afraid or uncomfortable, then this is going to be a hard road for you to hoe, because you are intentionally going to be afraid and uncomfortable, yeah. because it teaches us. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it does.
2: It yep.
1: really does. Yeah. I... I appreciate that so much. And listeners, I'm just asking you to all kind of bookmark that and go. <laughs> There's,
2: a lot. There's a lot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It, it, it is a lot. And it's really important. And for anybody out there, even, even if it's just, again, a lot of air quotes here, because we're all different places, you know, we have from very mild to very extreme, no matter where you're at on the scale. I think these are really good tips because I know from my experience, when I'm too soft on myself, I do start spiraling inward. I do start folding in. My world does get smaller and smaller.
2: Yes. When you do that, when you back up, we generally call it retreating, right? So, well, it was really, so let's, for instance, we'll take an agoraphobic, right? Who has a hard time driving. This is very common in this thing. So I, I don't want to drive or I can't drive by myself. I have to have my safe person with me or whatever it happens or I only drive in a very small radius. Okay. So you go out and challenge yourself. I'm going to go and drive one exit on the highway today. That's all it has to be, you know, one exit. And maybe it takes you a month to get to that, but that's okay. If it takes you a month to get to that. So you go and you do your work and it's scary. And then you come back home and you, first of all, you run back home to the safe bubble. And right. all you want to do is say it was horrible. It was so scary. I thought, I thought I was going to go crazy. I thought I was going to snap. It, it felt like it felt like it felt like, and you keep indulging the irrational fear. And then you decide. I I need to rest now. I I need to rest before I do this again. You are essentially rewarding your lizard brain for making the mistake. I call it lizard brain all the time, your amygdala. So your amygdala is sounding the alarm when it doesn't have to. And when you retreat, because that's its job is to get you to run, fight or flight, flight, flight. When you flight, when you flee, when you fly, you are essentially rewarding it. You are saying, thank you. Uh, You were correct. Please do that again. And that sucks because everybody wants to retreat. We all want to go to comfortable. We don't want to be afraid, but you have to pass through the discomfort in order for your lizard brain to understand, oh, I was wrong. It is sounding red alarms. You have to show it green lights. It, that's the only way it will learn. It doesn't learn by drinking celery juice. It doesn't learn by just breathing and meditation and putting your bare feet in the dirt. It doesn't learn that. It doesn't know that. Yeah. You have to pass through it and then wind up okay. And then it's like, oh, okay. Maybe I don't need the red lights.
1: So is it just like that for everybody? Or do people have to pass through it and pass through it and pass through it and pass through it? Like, oh, where's exactly. that breaking point?
2: Yeah, here's the bad news. And, and if you know who to complain to about this, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Maybe we'll do it together. <laughs> because the brain is amazing, right? Human brain is just freaking amazing. I'm a huge fan of the human brain, but it also really sucks. Like, so... Our threat response, a friend of mine actually is very fond of saying it's really fast and really efficient, but really dumb. Like, and that's true. So the problem is that we, and look, the the people who didn't have this died out 50,000 years ago. So they're here, right? Evolutionary, in an evolutionary perspective, our brains have gotten us here to the top of the food chain. The the issue is we can learn to be afraid almost instantly. A lot of people wind up being right. They wind up developing these disorders very quickly but you, we can't unlearn it instantly. So a lot of people get discouraged too. They're like, okay, they get really pissed off. I'm done with this. I'm going to kick anxiety today. And they go out and they do their grocery shopping or they take a family vacation. They white knuckle through it. They power through it. Then they come back and they're like, yeah, that was awesome. And then a week later, they're like, I don't understand. I'm still having panic attacks. I'm broken. It didn't work. It doesn't work that way. It it has to be repetitive. Sucks. Yeah. It's true.
1: So how, how can people get through that support? I mean, is there a support group is what is your biggest tip for pushing through that? Because, you know, again, a lot of people here dealing with infidelity and betrayal, recurring thoughts, recurring thoughts, recurring thoughts. And it's nice to have a support group, but so many of the people that I pick up on my support groups are the ones that are like, I'm so tired of being a part of support groups where people just cry and coddle each other.
2: Kinda. So I'm going to offer similar advice then. So if you're dealing, look, you know, I have a Facebook group right now that has almost 7,000 people in it, right? Is it the biggest anxiety support group on Facebook? No, not even close. Will it ever be? Probably not. I'm okay with that. But it looks different than any other one you will ever find. Because the first thing we do not allow is, does anybody else get? We don't allow it. Or like, can somebody talk to me? I'm having a panic attack. I need you to talk me down. And we'll teach people like, no, you actually don't need anybody to talk you down. I promise if you do nothing, it will pass and it'll pass faster. And then people start to learn that. So the best support that you can, the first thing you need to do is learn the mechanism here, understand how you got here and understand the mechanism at play. If you don't know why you're doing hard and scary things, you won't want to do them and and you'll hate it and it won't work. So you have to understand the mechanism at play. So educate yourself as to the true nature of the problem and the solution Then you surround yourself with people who will support you. But that support isn't, it's okay. No one understands. You're a warrior. You're a goddess, but you haven't left your house in six months. So, you, you know, right. So, you have to be super careful about that. We all want that. We want people to stroke our hair and make us feel like it's going to be okay. But that is not the way you recover from these disorders. You you need to surround yourself with people who will cheer for you and say, look, I know you don't want to do it today, but this is when you have to do it most. And when you're done, they'll say, look, you did a really hard thing. That's amazing. You're look how strong you are. It worked. It's working. You did it. You're okay. That's what you really need. You need the right, you need the right level of support and the right, if you're going to get professional help, which I'm a huge fan of the right therapist matters. It matters in a big way.
1: Yeah. 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 We're going to take a couple of moments for a break. And when we sure. come back, I want to talk about that right therapist, that kind of help. Because I think also in this world, we're so inundated with so many different things. And the fact is diet can matter and self-care can matter. And there, there's like so many different layers that truly can matter. And it's sure. like putting it together, I think is so confusing sometimes for people. Yeah. So yeah, we will be back in a few, stick with us
0: to all the women who have cried in the shower, smiled when they wanted to scream, and couldn't wait to get home and unhook their bra.
1: Flaunt is the definitive guidebook on how to get back in touch with who you are underneath your labels, roles, and scripts. Fall in love with yourself right now. Breathe life into the dreams you left behind and live each day with uninhibited joy. Pick up a copy of Laura Cheadle's number one best-selling book, Flaunt. Drop your cover and reveal your smart, sexy, and spiritual self wherever books are sold. It's available in print, digital, and audio formats and comes with two downloadable meditations. Do you feel betrayed by life, your body, or by someone that you love? You are not alone and you are not weak or overly emotional for feeling the way that you do. Betrayal is one of the most overwhelmingly painful experiences to navigate because it strikes at the core of who you are and what you are worth. No matter how gutted you feel, there is hope. You can flourish, not in spite of your experience, but because of it, I know. After 23 years of marriage, my world was shattered when I found out that my husband had been cheating on me with five different women for 15 years. I lost everything that day, my identity, my worth, and the future I had worked so hard to create. While it was a long and arduous journey back to myself, today I know who I am, what I want, and I am happier and more confident than I ever was before. I've got what I call naked self-worth, which is the ability to see, Know and love yourself for who you are, not for what you accomplish or for who you are in relation to others. No matter what has shattered your heart, if you're ready to get clear on who you are, what you want, and to learn how good life really can be, then life choreography is for you. Even if you feel too old or are too busy because you have kids at home and you're in charge of everything. Life Choreography is a comprehensive five-month, five-step program that empowers you to strip out of your labels, roles, and scripts and to reveal yourself as you are, not as you think you should be. To learn more, go to NakedSelfWorth.com and download your free guide that shows you how to untangle yourself from the past. Reclaim your sexy and start re-choreographing life on your own terms. So you can love and be loved for exactly who you most authentically are. And we are back with Drew Linsalata and we are talking about all things anxiety. And I mean anxiety. Capital A. Anxiety. Not oh, do you think it's gonna rain and mess up my newly washed car?
2: Right. Nothing,
1: yeah, nothing wrong with that, but we're gonna talk about some of the the therapists that really, the, the right kind of therapist, the right kind of tools, some of the things that you truly can do that will help you that will not make your anxiety worse.
2: Right. So, and I'm a huge fan of professional help, right? So if you can do it, Here, here's part of the problem that we have, and, You know, we talked about this a little bit, it can be hard to find the right therapist. So the therapists that will, the clinicians that will be most effective in helping you resolve an anxiety disorder are people who are going to kind of make you do the stuff that I'm talking about here on this podcast. So they are going to be that person for you, that cheerleader that like, you're going to have to do this. I'm going to give you homework. You have to do these assignments. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to teach you and, and cheerlead you and coach you through this process. What you don't want, so you want a therapist, if you can find them, that specializes in treating anxiety disorders, and they are out there. They're just not that common. So you want a therapist that specializes in anxiety disorders, not just, yeah, I do anxiety. If you walk into your therapist's office because you are riddled with panic and having a hard time leaving the house and anxiety is just making a smaller and smaller life for you, right? If you walk into your therapist every week and just talk about how you're feeling, you're going to be there a really long time and it's going to be frustrating. Mm -hmm. That's not those therapists are fine for different types of things, but that's not how you treat an anxiety disorder. So you don't want all therapy is not created equal. So you want somebody who specializes in anxiety disorders who is trained and specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy, or dialectical behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy, or metacognitive therapy, these are the big, they're all in the same family, right? Right. These are the most effective treatments we have, and they will get you through the process that I'm talking about. So somebody who wants to talk about, you know, whether or not you got hugged enough as a child may have the best of intentions, but their paradigm is not focused correctly for disordered anxiety. Yeah. If in fact, that's a problem, you can go back later and revisit those things for sure. Or sometimes at the same time, that's okay. You could do that work too. I'm not saying enough to do it, but that's not going to solve your panic disorder or your agoraphobia or your health anxiety.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So you need Mm -hmm. the right therapist. They're sometimes hard to find.
1: They are hard to find. And I think- in my experience, maybe in your experience and our listeners experience too, sometimes it's hard to know when to say no with a therapist. You start working and you start thinking, is this working? I'll just give it a little more time, it's not. I'll just try this other medication, I'll give it a little more time. Sometimes
2: it's hard to know. That's okay to no, not know. Look, yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff is uncertain and so sometimes you're making it up as you go along, that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you know, and you know what, sometimes it's really hard to, to sever a relationship with a therapist also. I, I respect that because sometimes it feels like the many people feel like they become a little attached to their therapist or the therapist becomes a bit of a safety device or a crutch. Like I've heard many, many people who've been in therapy for a long time where they're not really making any progress, but all they want to do is get to the therapy and, and process. Like, oh, I tried to go to the supermarket, had a huge panic attack. I need to process it with my therapist. I'm like, well, but how often if that has that happened, the processing isn't helping, but they become attached to their therapist. So it's hard or they can't find another one or they're not sure they can do it without that person. Or, you know, the other thing would be they don't want to give up some of the other stuff that they have been trying. I I can't give up my crystals. I can't give up my weighted blanket. But sometimes when you use devices like that, I'm not saying they have no place in life, but in this situation, if you're giving your weighted blanket credit for getting you through a panic attack, you are dropping all of your power on the floor and then stepping on it. Your weighted blanket did not get you through the panic attack. If you threw the weighted blanket away or set it on fire, the panic attack would still end. So it's all about learning experientially that you did that, not the blanket, not the crystals, not the celery juice, not the magnesium, none of it. You did that.
0: I like that.
2: Yeah. That's important. You have power and influence in this process. Yes. Stop giving it up.
1: Yes. And I love that because I like my stuff. Stuff is fun sometimes. <laughs> sure.
2: you know what? There's, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff, Laura. I, I, you know, and, and people sometimes get angry when I say that stuff. If you like those things, there's nothing wrong. If you like curling up under a weighted blanket because it just makes you feel nice, then awesome. I'm all for happy people. You just have to be careful how you apply those things. Yes. Yes.
1: Yeah, because you yeah. don't need it. You absolutely don't need that. So right. I, yeah, I, I love that. You know, when I did way back when, when I was kind of learning, learning, doing my yoga teacher training and learning up meditation and stuff like that, I had one teacher who said, you have to meditate with a crystal and yeah, it was crazy. And so many of us were like, but what if I'm in the car? What right. if I'm, <laughs> what if <laughs> I lose my, really, you're telling me I can't meditate without my crystal. Yes, I can watch me. And I think that goes to what yours. <laughs> yeah.
2: Oh, hell yeah, I can.
1: Yeah, yeah, that kind of goes to what you were, you know, when I did the intro on you, you had a determination to do this. And I want to talk about that because I'm a determined person. I know you're a determined person. There is that determination to do this. And as a hypnotherapist, I used to turn away a lot of people when I felt that they weren't committed to the process because otherwise it was a waste of their money and my time.
2: Yes, that's true.
1: So let's talk about commitment and how do you get committed if you're not committed and where was the turning point for you where you got committed or how did that all work?
2: Well, it's interesting because, you know, I have the, look, I have the, the privilege of speaking to thousands of people about this. I truly, truly consider it a privilege to, to talk with these people, not just to them, but with them. And I find that that commitment and that spark comes from different places, depending on where a person is at in their life and what their circumstances are and their personality, But it does start to come down to a a few main categories. For me, it was literally getting to the, that is enough. (laughs) Like when I felt like I'm that person that, you know, I tend to not, I don't tolerate failure. Now, we can argue that that may be part of the the issue, possibly, but I've always driven myself kind of hard. Did that contribute to this? Maybe. But addressing that did not solve my problem. In fact, using that actually helped me solve my problem. So, when I found that, like, you know, my kids were young at the time, my daughters, when they needed somebody to take them to, you know, a, an event, and I couldn't, or I, I would say I couldn't, I refused to because of fear. After a while, that became like, oh, this is not okay anymore. This is not okay. Like, I would much rather let this thing kill me than to live like that. So, in the end, everybody finds a way to get to that point where the discomfort of the recovery process is worth it because the discomfort of not recovering is worse. Yeah. It's different for everybody. Everybody has a different breaking point. Some people will never choose that and they will they will just stay. And that's if that is their choice, I respect that. I honor everybody's choice. I'm not saying everybody has to do this. But when you find that the, your life is so uncomfortable that you would rather do these scary things on a daily basis to get your life back, then you're ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're ready to go. And when you're willing to accept that, like, oh, all the stuff that I've been doing has it, there is no comfortable way. There's no gentle way. There's no, you know, this is hard. This is hard work. It's you're slogging through it. Like there's no other way that I can start talking, but that's the way it works.
1: Yeah. And and I'm glad you said it's hard work and you're slogging through it. There's so much that is hard work and it isn't that fun, but you're right on the other side of it. It's just better because you are free. You really can get what you want and do what you want and drive people places and have relationships.
2: Right. And not, not so in the end, what, you, what you're always looking for here is not to banish anxiety. That is not realistic. Like human beings, if you're alive on planet earth, you will experience anxiety. I might have a panic attack tomorrow. It's possible. I just don't care if I do or I don't. That's where you're trying to get Because when you're no longer afraid of your own anxious response, then you start to live based on your values again and not based on fear and avoidance. So that's where we're headed with this. You start to make value judgments again. And when I watch people go through the recovery process and some of the people that I work with on a one-on-one here and there, that is some of the most exciting moments when you see people start to make value decisions as opposed to fear decisions. Hey, you know, my daughter had to go to soccer practice and I grabbed the keys and I drove her there. And I waited for an hour and I talked to one of the moms and then we drove home and we got ice cream on the way home. And it was, I was so scared, but I did it. And they're so happy they chose their value over the fear.
1: I love that because that applies to so many things, you know, racism, (laughs) sexism, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Relationships, marriage. I mean, think about all of the decisions that we make based on fear.
2: So the lessons you learn when you go through this process, the book I'm writing right now is called Lessons from the Panic Zone. And it is, this is what recovery from an anxiety disorder teaches you. These are, these are lessons that are applicable across, like you said, all different relationships and career and all kinds of stuff. And they will stay with you forever. Those lessons stay with me forever. I would do it again tomorrow, all of it, if I could become who I am now. Yes. Yes. I I, I know you're in that same boat.
1: Oh, totally. Totally. I have said that so many times with the infidelity journey. People are like, "Would you marry him again? And it's like, you know what? Yeah. I would yeah. go through all of this because of who I am now.
2: Right. And yeah. what I find amazing about this process too, is that we are very willing to accept, I mean, look in that, in the whole like entrepreneur space and you know business space, Get ready to be, get comfortable being uncomfortable, dude. Like, come to my warrior retreat. The uh, lion's not sheep, blah, 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 F you. You know, that whole thing. We're very willing to, like, root for, like, be uncomfortable, man. There's growth in that. But yet, when it's time to really be uncomfortable to solve this problem, everybody's like, oh, oh I don't know about that, man. Like, right. that doesn't sound right. So why do we embrace this comfort as a teacher in some areas, but we, we run from it and think I'm crazy when I say this in other areas? Yeah like everything else in life. Sometimes you have to be uncomfortable, but there's lessons in it. Let it be a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: So I'm curious about this. You know this about me. I am playful. I am humorous. That's why I like use burlesque. Rip off your costume. Show me your sparkly bra. You know, I, I, I'm into the play over it. The, the joy of it, because to me, it helps get us out of that reptilian. Like I like to say, instead of fight, flight, or freeze, let's flaunt.
2: Oh, that's another F. I See? dig it.
1: I know. Yep. <laughs> I, for me, I like the playfulness of it because it makes it less threatening. Um, <laughs> what is the role that humor has played for you in this journey? And do you think it's necessary or not?
2: I, it doesn't hurt. I'll tell you that. You know, I've always been, people will tell me I'm a funny guy. I've always been like, I'm I'm the guy to make the joke for sure. And when I was able, and I always was, even in the grips of it, most people, even when they are in the grips of like things like, I'm afraid I want orange juice, but no one's opened it yet. And I'm afraid that it's been poisoned So I'm going to wait for my daughter to have some orange juice. I'm not kidding. This is real. Like, this is real. Like, this is the disordered thinking. Like, that doesn't make you a bad person. That's just brain habits right now. It's okay. Like, you don't really mean that. But when they're in the middle of that, they will sit and say, that is crazy. They will say, that's crazy. They'll laugh. They'll make jokes about it. So the humor is always there. When you recognize the irrationality, we can laugh at it. And many times I would be like, I cannot even believe that I did that. Like (laughs) I remember once having Chinese food having a panic attack about an hour later, and then just refusing. I didn't eat an egg roll for like eight years, which was ridiculous. And even when, it, when it was like, man, I really would love an egg roll. I am such a dork. Like I would make jokes about it and everything. And it helped. So yeah. humor definitely helps if you're that kind of person. Yeah. Let go of the suffering to a certain extent, you know,
0: yeah.
2: you know, we could, pain is not a choice. Suffering. I mean, that's a cliche. I'm gonna say suffering kind of is how you react to it and handle it. Sometimes you do want to just like Pound the desk and cry, and have somebody tell you like it's going to be all right. That's okay. We're all entitled to that, but you can't live your whole life that way. This is horrible. This is terrible. This is terrible. You don't. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Well, maybe take a step back and and look at it. Look at the irrationality of it. There's there's humor in that. That could be one of the the turning points for people. Yeah. 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 A lot of words. Sorry.
1: No, that's perfect. That's very well said. I appreciate it. The, uh, The other piece that is important to me, and I also believe it's important to you, is sometimes I intentionally lean into some of the cliche words, some of the magic words. It's going to be happily ever after, and you're going to flourish. And I lean into it because of the humor that I see, because of the parody, because... There is no such thing as happily ever after. There is no, like I talk about flourishing after infidelity and yes, I mean it, but it's also a parody because you're only gonna flourish for so long before you get in a car accident, before a global pandemic hits, before your spouse cheats again,
2: before, I mean that. Something. Yeah. But that's life. Yeah. That's the view of life. And I, but I, you know what, I'm kind of with you on that because I would never ever, I never use words like freedom. I never use those words. I look, part of my stock and trade in this space has been my ability or my willingness to just use this stupid voice of mine to go against those things. Like, please stop peddling freedom. Like that's this crazy thing that says you are better when you are free and dancing in a, in a flower field and like in this white dress. No, you are free when you can handle the sh- that life sometimes shovels at you with both hands. Like that's free. So I'm a big fan of more realistic view of things. Not that life sucks, but that when it does, you can handle it. Yeah. And I hate to say this, but also that our default state is not nirvanic joy. It's neutrality. Yeah. And then you are like one of the most playful people I've met. And we don't even know each other that well, but that comes shining through the minute you talk to you. But I think you would even agree that, like, you don't live your entire life at this crazy level of, like, inordinate happiness. Like, most No, of the wait, time, what? You're just nortru- natural. You're just neutral. And then you have moments of joy and then sometimes moments of sadness. All mm-hmm. acceptable, all okay. This is mm-hmm. what we learn. So, Yeah. and
1: And I like that we have a different, a different, it's not a different viewpoint. I think we have the same viewpoint, but we talk about it differently. You say you don't use those words, and right. I like to use them, but with kind of that,
2: Yeah, you're kind of carrying. This is the coolest thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: definitely. You have a twist on it that is so apparent, you know.
1: Right, right. Because it's like all you have to do is flaunt and get naked.
2: Yeah, and it was (laughs) like, right,
1: (laughs) and it is, but it's not.
2: (laughs) I know. It sounds. It probably sounds crazy to a lot of people, but clearly there is a method to that madness, and it, it, you know, it's so funny because we might be operating in different contexts, but. the the direction is really similar. Tremendous overlap there.
1: Yeah. That's what I like. And I, I think the people listening to this show can learn so much because of that, because that's the other thing, you know, that cliche that there's many paths to the top of the mountain there are, but they're all the same and they're all different at the same time. And it doesn't matter. Listeners. It doesn't matter if they have any kind of anxiety or no anxiety at all. The Uh lessons are timeless
2: And they are applicable. What I find so fascinating about some of this stuff, and I've been at this for a long time, I'm also, I I do enjoy philosophy and I'm a huge fan of Stoicism and and Buddhism and Taoism. And I love to learn about those things. The more you get into this stuff, the more it all converges anyway. So whether you're coming from an anxiety background, anxiety disorders, infidelity, substance abuse, financial ruin, whatever it is, we all kind of wind up in the same classroom. Yes. We're just different ways. And we're working at a different textbooks, but in the end we wind up in the same place. There must be a reason for that. That can't be a coincidence.
0: Yeah.
2: I can't be. So I think in the end, you know, we are definitely, we are a very similar message for me. I'm telling somebody to go and drive that one exit on the highway, which terrifies them for you. You're talking about like, Hey, get up and, and flaunt it a little bit. Well, yeah. what if I have a panic attack? You'll handle it. Well, what if somebody thinks I'm ugly? You'll handle it. Yeah. Lessons the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, one, one of my stories, I'm just gonna end with this story because it was, it's funny. One of my first shows, I was tap dancing and you know, a little nervous cause I haven't tapped since I was a teenager and I was in my forties at the time and I'm in my pasties and it's a fourth of July routine. So I've got my tassels that are fireworks that, you know, shoot the lights and I jump of off course, the of stage, of
2: course. Of course you did, why wouldn't you?
1: <laughs> of course, and, and even though I'm literally doing this Metaphorically, people do the same thing. I'm all happy, I'm brave, I'm in my power. I leap from the stage. It's a concrete floor. Tap shoes and a concrete floor do not mix. I was like on ice skates and I'm flying and I see the crowd all around me and the horror on their face and I'm flying and I slid and I fell. And it was that moment where, what do I do? And I thought, I strike a pose and I struck a pose. Yeah, what are you You gonna do? Because what else can you do? And it ended up being a memorable thing. I got a ton of applause. Nobody came up to me and said, you are so stupid. How could you have, how dare, nobody said that. Everybody was like, that was awesome. I was so afraid for you. And the the way you handled it, that was great. And it ended up being a great story. And it's just like so many things in life. That moment that we're the most afraid of that we think is going to be the worst just ends up being a great story someday.
2: Turned out not to be. That is, that is a perfect way to end this because that is exactly the way. What if I panic? What if this? What if that? What if I wind up ass backwards on my tap shoes on a concrete floor? Then it happens and I'll figure it out then. And you did. Yeah. And everybody yeah. can.
1: Yeah. And it ends up being a great story.
2: <laughs> Very good. That is a good story. I'm sorry you went flying, but it's a good story.
1: It is. It is. And I survived. I'm here to talk about it.
2: So it's all good.
1: So where can listeners find your books, find your podcast, find out about you?
2: Well, the, the podcast, first of all, there are six years worth of podcasts. It's all free. Go get it. And so you can find all of that stuff. Plus I wrote two books. My story is an anxiety story. That one you can get free. It's an MP3 download. Go to my website and just, you can download the MP3 and listen, or you can follow a link to Smashwords and get it for free. Name your own price, zero. The other book is called An Anxiety Story. That's a recovery guide. It's 400 pages, taking you through the steps that I talked about here. But everything is at my website, The Anxious Truth, theanxioustruth.com. We'll have everything, the links to all my social media. Everybody, come on down. Everybody's welcome. Perfect. So, yeah, everybody's
1: welcome stuff. unless they start asking for. <laughs>
2: no, everybody's welcome anyway. Like we nobody gets turned away here. And sometimes it, it could be a little bit like it's different than what they expect it to be. But if anybody comes from the podcast, they'll have already heard me. So they'll know what to expect already. They won't be blindsided. Ah. Come on now. We're all welcome to have you. everybody's. Welcome.
1: <laughs> I like that. Thank you so much for coming on my show, for sharing your wisdom, for being transparent in your journey too. And for saying that it's hard. Thank you for saying that it's hard. I appreciate that so much.
2: Freaking hard. But thank you, Laura. I appreciate the, the opportunity and it was fun to talk to you. We'll do it again. Yeah, we absolutely will. Listeners have an amazing week. I really think there were a lot
1: of great nuggets in here that you can apply across the board to yourself, to your kids, to your friends, whatever. Hold on to some of these things. Check out Drew's book, check out his podcast. Wherever you're out, whatever's going on, have a phenomenal week. And as usual, always remember to flaunt exactly who you are because who you are is always way more than enough.